simply amazing. Thank you, String Ensemble. Thank you for your ministry to us. One of my favorite hymns, Holy, Holy, Holy. I invite you tonight to turn in your Bible uh, to Titus chapter 3. We do tonight come to the close of our series on the pastoral epistles. And uh, throughout this series that's uh, taken the better part of three or four months, we've been observing how Paul, the seasoned apostle, is engaging in a kind of an intimate way with his young apprentices, Timothy and Titus. And we've seen him providing guidance and direction for these young prodigies, uh, these uh, uh, pastors in training. And uh, we see them uh, throughout these letters, Paul admonishing these young men to preach the word, to protect the flock of God, to delegate leadership responsibilities, and to live out an example of godliness for people in the church to follow. And as we come to a close, we see some similar language, but one of the highlights of this text it comes from verses 4 through 7, which, in my humble assessment, is one of the clearest and most concise expressions of the gospel in the entire Bible. And so as we finish our study from the pastorals, let's consider how we might fight the good fight, finish well, as we embrace this glorious mystery of God's kindness to us in Christ. Please follow as I read Titus chapter 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. 
do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way to see that they have everything that they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good, in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Thus reads the inspired word of God and some of the final words of the beloved Apostle Paul. Let us, let us pray as we consider this text. Father, we marvel and we wonder at the gracious and generous initiative of God who did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to seek and to save that which was lost. We thank you, Father, that while we were still in our sin, you had compassion upon us and came to deliver us. And you invite us tonight to explore this wonderful mystery. We pray that you would shed light upon this text and light upon our hearts that we might understand it and even be transformed by it. Bless us during this time we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In a devotional book in the Covenant Kids series by Susan Hunt, we're introduced to a young brother and sister, Cassie and Caleb, who uh, begin to befriend some new neighbors, a young boy and a sister, Mac and Mary, who are living temporarily with their grandmother. Now, Cassie and Caleb invite these new children to play with them, but soon grow discouraged because Mac and Mary can be mean and nasty. On one occasion, Mac rides his bicycle right over Caleb's remote control car, crushing it, and sarcastically retorting, sorry. His sister Mary's not much better. She trips Cassie on the sidewalk and laughs. Well, Cassie and Caleb are hurt. They are offended and they lose interest at all in befriending these new children. But it's later that they learn the true story of why Mac and Mary have come to live with a grandmother. Their father had abandoned them, leaving their mother desperate, struggling to care for her two children. This news shatters Cassie and Caleb's impression of the whole situation, giving them a whole new perspective, enabling their hearts to cry out with compassion towards their new neighbors. Well, with the help of their parents in fervent prayer, Cassie and Caleb become very intentional at reaching out to these two hurting children. And then one day, their father comes home, with an extra set of tickets to the circus. And Cassie has a bright idea that perhaps they should invite Mac and Mary to the circus, rather than invite their best friends. And so they do. Mac and Mary are stunned by the offer, and Mac even responds, Why are you being so nice to us? 
when we have treated you so badly? The answer, of course, is the kindness of God. And by expressing this kindness, Cassie and Caleb are able to open up a door in which Mac and Mary begin to understand the nature of love and true friendship. And in time, their wounds begin to heal as they begin to embrace the forgiveness of God and are even later able to lend that same forgiveness to their estranged father. This simple children's story echoes the longing of every human heart. You see, by nature, we are unable to yield kindness unless we have received it first. A person who is deficient in experiencing kindness becomes self-protective, suspicious of any effort from others whose apparent acts of kindness may be taken as attempts to merely use them or take advantage of them. Kindness is foreign to fallen human flesh. It requires an alien intrusion. Thankfully, God graciously invades our world and transforms our hearts that we too might replicate his kindness. I want you to notice, as we look at this text, just first in ver- the first two verses. There's a list of duties, of virtues, and you'll notice there's nothing uniquely Christian about this list as you go through, be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to do good, to not slander, to be peaceable, to be respectful and considerate, unless you might consider true humility at the end as a uniquely Christian virtue. I would say that this list of attributes Paul provides would be consistent with ancient pagan virtue lists and even our contemporary secular standards for good behavior. Our public schools and our government policies should not have any problem taking no exceptions to this list of traits. There's a reason for that. It's because this basic disposition towards a moral order is designed by God. We call it common grace. In his kindness, God has established a moral order to life and has set in place authority structures to provide security for us in a very fallen and dangerous world. We need government, even though we may argue over the best form. And it's common grace that compels all men to do good, even when their hearts are self-centered. This principle of common grace, it can explain why many avowed atheists or agnostics can really be good and decent human beings. Some of them can be frustratingly good in their eager desire to do good deeds and sometimes more zealously than many Christians. Christopher Hitchens, who I mentioned, I believe, a few weeks ago, an author whose work I'm reading called God is Not Great, 
He is an ardent atheist who argues very forcefully that religion is immoral. That believers don't live any differently than non-religious peoples. And he insists that secular humanism best explains modern progress, the development of human rights, the improvement of living conditions in the last several centuries. But as you go through Mr. Hitchens' writings, you have to examine a very fundamental flaw. It is the same flaw that like-minded secularists, many of whom have been coming out with New York Times bestsellers in recent years, it's this flaw that in their entire scheme, they are drawing on what we might call borrowed capital from the Christian faith. In their efforts to redefine morality and a good life order, they rest upon a Christian foundation, but take God out. And so, as the reasoning goes, if there is no God, there's no reason to believe in reason. There's no reason to be good, no basis for morality. This system lacks any substantial foundation. Hitchens and others basically hijack a Christian framework, believing in an orderly world, a reasonable world, a world that is understandable, that we can pursue genuine goodness. That's a real problem if you don't believe in God. Mr. Hitchens, if he were truly consistent in his lifestyle, he would be a moral wreck. But it's God's common grace that keeps his moral compass on track. I have to confess, I get frustrated with Hitchens and other unbelievers who attack Christianity, whether in books or media press or education. I get angry. I get impatient at the railings of those who are dogmatic in their bias against the Bible and against the church of God. Like James and John, I want Jesus to send fire down from heaven to burn up these heathen Samaritans. And that's why I'm thankful for God's kindness. I'm thankful as well for men like Francis Schaeffer, a man who helped trailblaze a new kind of engagement with unbelief several decades ago with the founding of the Labrie Ministry to give honest answers to honest questions about God and religion. And I'm thankful for contemporary men like Tim Keller, pastor in New York City of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, an author of a recent book, The Reason for God, in which he responds to this neo-atheism in a compelling, convincing, and compassionate way. In fact, Pastor Keller has uh, been doing a recent circuit of speakings at uni- in university settings, full-capacity crowds of not just believers, but many unbelievers, hungry for a response and answer to their questions. 
Keller's simplicity, his listening ear, his genuine concern, his ability to articulate the truth, to expose the flaws of secularism, has won much credibility before audiences who have been hostile, if not even apathetic, to Christianity. I'm convinced that the compassionate engagement with unbelief by the men such as Schaefer and Keller is rooted in a rich understanding of the gospel. And that understanding of the gospel begins with a deep understanding of our own sin and weakness, as expressed here in verse 3. Here in verse 3, Paul humbly reminds each of us what we once were and what we would be apart from Christ. He calls it foolish. We were disobedient, going astray. We were slaves to our desires and our pleasures. We were even hostile, hating and hate being hated by one another. Paul uses similar language in Ephesians 5, verse 8, calling us darkness before coming into the light. Colossians 3, 7, referring to the shameful manner in which we once lived. And my personal favorite is 1 Corinthians 6, 11. After listing a number of scandalous sins, heinous crimes of immorality, Paul says to the people of Corinth, And such were some of you. Friends, we have no basis whatsoever for attacking those engrossed in immorality. Unbelievers who offer up godless treatises, we have no right to scorn them in their thinking. Rather, God would have us sympathize with these men in a desperate plight, as if they're groping about in the darkness. Friends, as we contend with a world of unbelief, a growing hostility against the church and Christ, we need to remember the words of Romans 2.4 that says that it was God's kindness that leads us towards repentance. And God's kindness is nowhere better expressed than in verses 4 through 7. In classic Paul manner, after cataloging this list of the miserable human condition, Paul offers in verse 4 the resounding, But God! He interrupts this morbid introspection into our helpless plight and shifts our focus to the greatness and the goodness of God Almighty. But When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. God, the one who is holy, who would be perfectly just to condemn us, graciously invades our world in kindness. He is the intruder into hostility and faces his rebels with shaking fist, hurling insults in his face, with an undying compassion. It was at this critical juncture in human history that God entered in to save. 
And Paul clarifies the basis in verse 5. That it was not due to our righteousness. God was not moved to pity by our goodness. Rather, it was our misery and sin that compelled him. Long ago, the Lord said to Israel that he redeemed them not because of their righteousness, but due to the wickedness of the nations and for the purposes of his own glory. Paul likewise writes in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God saved us and called us to a holy life not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Any and all efforts on our part to save ourselves are futile. One of my favorite illustrations on this point comes from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia stories. In that story, we meet Eustace, the unlovable little rogue, the rude and arrogant little boy, a thorn in the side of his companions. Eustace is a complainer. He is a conniver. And as the voyage comes upon a mysterious island, Eustace wanders off and finds himself in a grave predicament. He stumbles upon gold in a cave. And selfishly, greedily grabbing hold of it, he finds himself later transformed into a hideous dragon. And he's stuck. He begins to eat dragon food, and he loathes himself. Although he's powerful and he can terrify others, he longs for freedom. And then one evening, Aslan the lion, Lewis's Christ-like figure in these stories, comes to Eustace and leads him to a pool and invites him, commands him to wash Eustace gladly goes down into the pool and begins to wash and finds that he can scratch away and remove his outer layer of dragon skin. And after taking it off, he discovers there's another dragon skin underneath and he begins to work at that one. And the next one. And the next one. And he washes and he renews and he repeats himself only to find more dragon skin underneath. And then the terrifying thought occurs to him that he will be a dragon forever. In that moment of crisis, Aslan speaks to Eustace, you must let me do it. And taking one firm claw of his paw, he stabs Eustace right in the chest and begins to rip, causing Eustace excruciating pain And yet a tremendous relief. In just moments past, Eustace finds himself restored. A little boy again. With this massive dragon carcass lying all about him. He was free. His efforts to save himself had been completely futile. But what was impossible for him was easy for Aslan. Like Eustace, those of us in Christ have been washed and renewed by the power of God. 
we did not do it. We did not contribute to our salvation. We were washed and renewed by the initiative of God who took away our filth, the grime of our sin, and then clothed us and bathed us, washed us and made us clean in the righteous blood of Christ. And in that tremendous transaction, we were also given a brand new nature and a new spiritual power in which we're now enabled to actually live the life that God intended us to live. And where we were once lacking in humility and compassion and self-control, we now have a new identity in Christ to be everything that he calls us to be. And we also have a promise in verse 7 that we are now heirs, heirs of God. That not only has God saved us, not only are we justified by his grace through the vicarious atonement, the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ where he died in our place, we're not only spared the judgment of eternal punishment, but we're given a new status. We are adopted. We are accepted. We are validated. We are embraced by the Heavenly Father as His sons and daughters. And that means the inheritance is ours. That we enjoy the promise of eternal life that can never perish, spoil, or fade away. Friends, such knowledge of God's gracious initiative should humble us. This glorious truth should temper any and all judgmental thoughts who might have ill will towards unbelievers. We need to recognize that we were invaded, that God has graciously captured us by his own kind initiative. And ought thought that not lead us to a profound compassion for the lost, those who are desperately trying to fill up the void of their hearts with empty nothings. Critical attitudes must be far from us. May it be our prayer that the gospel would shatter all of our pride and our prejudice, lowering ourselves as we rise up with great joy, seeking to know Christ and to make him known. And may this glorious truth transform our hearts, our church, the places where we live and work, that we might manifest the kindness of God to others. And so we see the practice of kindness in verses 8 and following. Kindness, we see, is a consequence of belief in verse 8. Those who have put their trust in God must be devoted to doing good. Now, of course, doing kindness is not a means of attaining God's favor. We've already established that salvation is by God's grace alone. And yet, kindness is the natural overflow of a heart transformed by the gospel of God's grace. Our tongue becomes an instrument of healing. Once a sharp dagger is now chiseled by the Spirit as a plowshare to reap a harvest of blessing. Once perhaps a 
pool of bitterness, our words become a spring of refreshment. It was this humiliation and transformation, I believe, that enabled Schaefer to respond to his critics with kindness. He was notorious for befriending his foes in debates, those whose venom intimidated other believers. And we see this kindness first in the Lord Jesus, who was relentless in his doing good to those who sought to do him harm. Remember him going to the home of Simon the Pharisee, whose only purpose was to expose Jesus as a fraud. And yet Jesus lovingly tells Simon a story to expose his Pharisee heart, to help him to see his debt and offer his gratitude and thanksgiving to the Lord his God. And we see even on the cross, in the hour of Christ's bitterest suffering, he comforts a thief. He thinks of his own mother's welfare. He forgives his enemies. The gospel of a God-centered life leads to a radical kindness that gets the world's attention. But are there limits to our kindness? Though God's kindness is limitless in many ways, I believe verses 9 through 11 suggest to the minister and to the lady that within the body of Christ there are boundaries that sometimes need to be established for the good of the body. I've lost count how many times Paul has said these words in verse 9, exhorting Timothy and Titus to avoid foolish controversies. Now, there will be many conflicts that the pastor and the lay people will get involved in and cannot avoid. But here Paul was referring to those ridiculous wranglings over minute doctrinal issues, speculative theology, things that are unprofitable. Namely, these are things that distract from the weightier matters, like sound teaching, evangelism, and pastoral care. The seasoned apostle wisely counsels Titus to warn a divisive person once, And twice. But if he proves incorrigible, then have nothing to do with him. It's a matter of priority. It's as if to tell Titus, and all of us would be leaders in a church, to remind us that we are not the Messiah. We don't change people, that's God's job. Our job is to direct people to Christ, but also to entrust them to Christ. Not long ago, a young woman in our college and career ministry came to seek my counsel and dealing with a very difficult relationship with a college-age girl that she had been discipling for the better part of a year, year and a half. Just this young college-age girl was simply not growing not owning the things that they were discussing. And the young woman was observing a kind of an unhealthy attachment to her. And as she described the dynamic further, I concluded that it was a very codependent 
relationship, that this girl had a crutch, was using the woman as a crutch. Uh, and as she explained it, this young woman would challenge this disciple to really own her faith, to make personal changes in her life. But she would respond very defensively. In any attempts on the young woman to withdraw from the relationship, the girl would respond with very manipulative tactics. So after hearing these things, I told this young woman that she needed to establish boundaries with this disciple. This relationship had grown unhealthy, becoming counterproductive, and I would conclude that in many ways this girl could not see Christ because the young woman was in the way. It was time for her to step out. And sometimes the kindest thing is to limit that access and to implement tough guidelines that people can be confronted with the reality of Christ. Kindness does not mean that we are a mere pushover. Biblical kindness has teeth. Kindness does not require us to be pawns in the hands of manipulative people. We are not honoring God when we allow controlling people to use us in their own selfishness. Biblical kindness preserves human dignity as we submit to Christ. So yes, we can respond to divisive and difficult people, as Paul instructs here, with a Christ-like compassion and a Christ-like boldness to perhaps even withdraw from the relationship. If perhaps that's the means God will use to help this person bear the consequences of their destructive behavior. Sometimes the kindest thing is to get out of the way and let Jesus do his work in the people that we most care about. Well, lastly, in the final four verses, we see a number of issues regarding missions and hospitality and the diligence and work and ministry of the laity in the church. We, as Paul writes about various individuals, we get the impression of an itinerant ministry. And the impression we get from the early church is that itinerant preachers and missionaries and church planters would make a circuit, and they depended upon the hospitality of local pastors and lay leaders who would open their homes to them, as Paul writes, exhorting them to see that they have everything that they need. Many of you have graciously opened up your own homes to host our missionaries at the missions conference. Our young people coming in to do a concert for the weekend or even hosting uh, foreigners, even unbelievers, through American home life. And you've experienced the joy of enriching your life as you share it with another. This is but one example of how people devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. May it be our ambition to live daily for God's glory, to maximize our usefulness as we help spread his joy and kindness to others. When asked the secret of his large, growing church, the pastor 
of the largest church in the world in Seoul, Korea. Simply responds, honoring and glorifying the Lord his God, but goes on to also highlight the means in the love and the kindness of the people of this church. This church of 100,000 members in Seoul, Korea is made up of hundreds of smaller cell groups. And each of the cell group members are trained to pray and to diligently look for opportunities to meet the needs of local individuals in their community. And so when they spot somebody in God's providence, a single mother struggling to make her rent, a young man in need of a job, an elderly person with a medical need, the cell group mobilizes into action and begins to shower their neighbor with deeds of mercy, meeting tangible needs and encouragement until that person is simply overwhelmed and is compelled to ask, why are you being so nice to me? Providing a golden opportunity for the cell group to present the gospel. This pastor declares that it takes an average of four months for the typical Korean unbeliever to come to faith in Christ through this strategy of outreach. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The kindness of God has appeared in the flesh. The Father sending his one and only Son into a hostile world, not to condemn it, but to redeem it. And may it never cease to amaze us. May we never stop marveling over the remarkable kindness of God who sets us free from the slavery of sin to enlist us in his great mission to spread his joy and kindness to the nations. To him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do marvel and we do wonder at your gracious and kind initiative in Christ. Thank you for calling us to be a people set apart, to declare your praise and to live for your glory. Lead us this new week to live for you, to delight in you, to rejoice in your goodness and to spread your kindness to those that you are seeking. Use us, we pray as the Lord our Savior seeks and saves the lost. We pray in his most precious name. Amen.